Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome to this week's episode. Now, craft beers and gins have come into their own in the last few years, alongside artisanal bakeries and independent coffee roasters. So what is going to be the next big thing amongst small, specialist food and drink businesses? If you listen to my podcast with Katerina Albanese at the pub show, it could be cider, English whiskey, or indeed rum. And if it's rum, then Giles Colligan, Vince Noyce and Ditch Oatley will be leading the way. I caught up with Vince and Ditch at the Portsmouth Distillery, where I discovered that the word rum is really an umbrella term for a drink that comes in various different guises. From the floral French agricole, which uses sugarcane juice, to the molasses-based rum associated with the British Navy. Now, regular listeners will know that I love meeting people who do things properly, who really research and understand their craft and don't take shortcuts. This edition is yet another tale of dedication and patience, with Vince in particular devoting hours to researching different rums across the Caribbean, from the Dominican Republic in the north down to Trinidad in the south. It's a tough gig, but someone has got to do it. And now they have to wait impatiently for three years for some of their barrel-aged rum to mature, hidden in a casement of a fort built in 1785, providing perfect temperature-controlled ageing conditions. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Okay, Dish and Vince, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. It's hugely appreciated. Um, Vince, I'm going to start with you, because I know you wanted to be in a historical building. Can you just explain to people listening, where on planet Earth are we, please? Yeah, well, we're in uh, Fort Cumberland, uh, which is an 18th century bastion fort. It's on East Knee Point on Portsea Island in Portsmouth. So the southeastern tip of the island, as you look at it. Um, it's an incredible example of a bastion fort, uh, a bastion penta fort, actually. So it's the shape of a pentagon. Um, it's been, or there has been a fort here since the uh, 1600s. Um, this particular fort was uh, started in 1747 um, as a result of the, uh, the paranoia of the Jacobite uh, rebellion. Uh, and of course, any moment now we're going to be invaded by some, uh, some French. Uh, and uh, it was upgraded by the then Duke of Cumberland, hence the name, uh, and finished in 1812, built largely by uh, prisoners of war and convicts. Uh, which is probably why it took so long uh, to build, but more importantly, the paucity of, uh, of materials because, as I said, the paranoia of being invaded by the French any, any moment now. Right. It's a fantastic place, 24-acre site. Uh, there are 20, uh, sorry, 84 casemates, which is uh, the vaulted sort of ceilinged um, uh, rooms, if you like, in the skirts of the fort, uh, most of which are currently derelict. Uh, there's only, um, I think... Ooh, a handful ditch, how many, maybe 
eight or so yeah, being used at nine. the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, they require quite a bit of renovation, quite a bit of work. Uh, it's all um, an ancient monument, so conservation requirements, etc., etc. But if you're willing to put the work in and and uh, and go along with the conservationists, it's a fantastic place to have a business and call home. It is, isn't it? It literally is uh, yeah, awe-inspiring when you drive through the gates, which are huge, aren't they? You don't get a lot of passing trade, I'm guessing, with those uh, huge yeah, gates at the front. I guess that is probably its biggest downfall, uh, the fact that uh, currently, because of health and safety restrictions by um, Historic England, and quite rightly so, because it's it can be a bit dangerous, I suppose, if you're walking up and around the ramparts, um, the site is closed to the public. Um, it's not closed to the public for the uh, distillery, however. Uh, we have a concession for people to come in uh, to the shop between 11 and 2 on weekdays and Saturdays. Really? Uh, and of course we do tours, so okay. we, we can have people in, uh, but people just coming into the fort um, is, is a no-no at the moment. Okay, and you, you so you can just pop in any day? Yeah, you can. Can you? That's Absolutely. worth coming just for that, isn't it? Absolutely. Buy a bottle of rum, get a free little uh, yeah look at, look yeah. at such an ancient Absolutely. fort. Absolutely. So uh, these casements, which in essence sort of remind me of the railway arches, I suppose, up in up in London. Absolutely. You know, kind of, uh, what were they used for? Well, um, this particular one, uh, because we're in the Ravelin, and the Ravelin is, um, without getting too technical and geeky, um, if you look, if you if you go online and, and look at our website, you'll see the shape of the fort. It's also our logo shape. Um, the triangle at the bottom, which looks a bit like the turtle's tail, if you like, is the Ravelin, and that's the home of the Portsmouth Distillery. Um, this particular area of the fort would have been used for um, storage of uh, dangerous stuff, um, plus a little bit of uh, accommodation for troops. So the, the, the casemate we're sitting in now, which houses our bar, our reception area, and um, the bottling facility in the back, which you may be able to hear in the background because Joshua's bottling some of our excellent... Yeah, I was just going to mention uh, that. You can hear clinking. It's rum. not that we're actually getting hammered on rum. <laughs> it is only uh, half past nine in the morning. It is because somebody is is uh, bottling. So th there could have been up to upwards of 30 troops living in here at any one time. Uh, so it would have been quite crowded. They would have uh, lived, uh, cooked, eaten, slept, you know, all everything in here. Uh, so it would have been, yes, I would say... Uh, less than comfortable. <laughs> However, um, so there's two on this side of the, ra on, on the Ravelin that would have had troops in. The others would have been storage. Um, at the very tip, there's also a, an ex-gunpowder um, magazine, uh, which we now use as our tasting room, which is a very, very lovely place to end the tour. Um, so yeah, that's that's what it would have been used for. Yeah, amazing. Um, and you had two red lines apparently when you started, and we'll come to the second one, but one was, you know, when you had this idea, which, you know, again, we'll also come to, but you wanted to be in a historic building, why was that important to you? Yeah, um, well, authenticity, uh, provenance, um, history, brand building, um, something for people to identify with, all of those things uh, are very key to us. Um, so without being disingenuous to anybody in the north part of the island or indeed just off the island, having a lock up in Drayton wouldn't have washed it. Um, there are a plethora of historic buildings in uh, the Portsmouth area, uh, and indeed on Portsea Island. Um, uh, and therefore, that was our red line. We, if we could not find a historic England uh, to set up in, then we weren't gonna go ahead with the project. Um, a bold statement at the beginning, because we could have fallen foul and, you know, okay, right, well, we can't do it now, or maybe our, our, eaten our words and found ourselves in an industrial estate. But, we were very lucky. Uh, we 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 met um, with the 
with Portsmouth City Council. They suggested Fort Cumberland. We came and saw Historic England and Fort Cumberland. They were very accommodating. And uh, the rest, as they say, is, is history. Uh, and that's also started to play a part in naming of the rums as well, is that right? What, what are a couple of the names of your rums? Yeah, very much so. I mean, our, our, our basis, our, our gem, the, 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 the spirit which, which gives us everything is our 1968 white rum. Right. And that is named not as an ego thing, it's named 1968 after um, Vincent's birthday, indeed. <laughs> um, but we wanted to have our rums uh, to have a number to them. So apart from our Cinnabar Spice Rum and Forum Garden Rum, we're aging in barrels, so our three-year-old is going to be called 1812, which is when the fort was completed, and our five-year-old is going to be called 1747, which is when the fort starts to be, starts to be built. So again, bringing it all back to the venue here, so it is very, very important to us, indeed, yeah. yeah. Amazing. And you literally have got a tattoo, Vince. That, um, I literally is... have, yes. I'm the only one with balls big enough <laughs> and had confidence enough that this would work to have a tattoo on my wrist of the fort. That's, that's an impressive dedication to the brand. We have a pineapple in our brand uh, for reasons I won't bore you with, but uh, my team often say that I should get a, yeah, a, pi a tattoo of a pineapple, which yeah, I've not should. done yet. So Absolutely, yeah. Hats yeah. off uh, to you, the fact you've done it. Um, Cinnabar was one of the ones you just mentioned. In fact, I think when I walked in, Vince, earlier, you were just cleaning out the... Uh, what's it? The, the, the Sophie, our, our 500 litre uh, pot still, Sophie uh, Wu. Yeah, I was cleaning her out because we, we, we did a run of, um, of Cinnabar yesterday, um, which is our, our spice rum. Uh, very distinctly different to any other spice rum that you'll have had on the market um, because of two reasons. Principally, um, it's an unaged rum and it's distilled. Most spice rums on the market are aged rums that have had spices infused into them. They then tend to be filtered and over-sweetened uh, over and over-vanillaed, in my opinion. Um, ours, however, is that we use the same base that we used to make um, 1968. So for the second distillation, I infuse the spices for 24 hours, and then we distill them into the rum, which then gives you a very clean, crisp uh, spirit, 41%. There's a nice pop of spice on the palate and a lovely warm cuddle as it goes down. We sweeten it, but only very slightly with the same syrup that we use to make our rum, uh, which gives it some color, uh, a little bit of vanilla extract, and that's Cinnabar Spice Rum. Nice, I love the thought of giving you a cuddle on the way down. That's, yes. a, that's, a, that's a great description. Um, we'll come in, in a minute into why uh, yeah, your rum is so different, I suppose, and, and what you're doing that's special. Um, but Ditch, one of the things that, that seems to come up regularly and uh, is this kind of the growth of the gin market, I suppose, and the, the craft gin market, which has this huge resurgence in the last sort of three or four years, I guess. Um, and I was interviewing uh, Katerina from the pub show recently, and then they were looking at these kind of forecasts for the year ahead, what, what they thought might be changes. And, and this kind of, yeah, next stage equivalent craft gin revolution in rum is, is one that came up. Is that something that you've heard? And is that something that you're observing? And what's your thoughts around rum being the next kind of... Well, they've been kind of talking about rum being the next big thing for sort of eight or nine years now. Um, and last year, uh, the, the, the industry press put it out that it, it just reached the, the, the internal sales and revenue, the billion pounds mark. Uh, but of course, that's mainly down to your, um, your Ricardis and your you know, 15 pounds for a litre white rum from Sainsbury's, uh, not necessarily down the premium um, rum end of the market. Having said that, you know, gin has had such a ridiculous resurgence in the last sort of, you know, eight or nine years, um, it's becoming more localised. Uh, originally, when I joined the team here, um, the guys wanted to call our gin Portsmouth Gin. And I said, wonderful, try saying that in Southampton. So, 
<clears throat> we're in an 18th century bastion fort, and, you know, the, the botanicals grow on the roof, you know, it really had to be called Fort Jim. Uh, so that's more in terms of, you know, branding and uh, I guess from a marketing perspective, it gives us a little bit more national and I guess international reach. Because um, if you could have called it Portsmouth Gym, you know, who in Liverpool cares about Portsmouth Gym? And likewise, you know, would we care about Liverpool Gym? You know, if I go to Liverpool, I would like to sample their local gyms and, and likewise. So things have become a lot more localised. Uh, you know, the gin market is, is massively... Um, subscribed right now. Uh, it is, you know, I guess in terms of sales, it is our, our key product because everyone's drinking gin. Um, you know, we'd be stupid not to be making gin on, you know, on the side of the rums. But the great thing is you know, to, to, not, to have the provenance and to be making rums, I'm sure Vince will come on to and allude to later, you know, to be making rum from scratch in a very, very different way uh, gives us a fantastic USP and, you know, it just is something we can be so easily passionate about. And of course, that can it really helps when you're out there chatting to customers and potential customers. Yeah. Are there many rum distilleries already in the UK? Or? There are about 15 or 16 rum distilleries in the UK, roughly about that, um, who actually are making rum from scratch. But they, you know, they make it from a homogenised molasses, which is like a treacle, which has got no provenance to it. Uh, whereas we, you know, are importing sugarcane juice from Costa Rica, and so it's a completely different process. And the end product is just. Wonderful. Yeah. If, if, if I can just jump in, if I may. Um, I, I just, one worry bead I have, and, and, and possibly straying into risky territory here, uh, one worry bead I have with the, uh, with a, uh, an emerging um, production of rum in the UK is we tend to see at the moment some distilleries thinking, do you know what, everyone's saying the rum's going to be the next thing. We need to make a rum. Uh, disingenuous warning. Um, not entirely sure they know exactly how to make a good rum. They're just getting hold of some molasses, fermenting it, putting it through, still making some rum. Now, great. Absolutely no problem with that. The more people making rum, the better. Because if we can have a rum essence in the same way that we've had a gin essence, then all of us will do very well out of that. My only concern is that it's incredibly easy to make a rubbish rum. It's not so easy to make a good rum. Yes. Uh, and what I don't want people to do is just rush out there and make rum and then put people off the market. Yeah. 100%. That's my biggest concern. Yeah. Good. Well, that is a, beautiful, is a beautiful segue into the point of difference, I suppose, and why I came to speak to you guys. Uh, and this all starts, I guess, with what inspired you to get into rum in the first place. So your history is the Navy, and I think then you ended up working with Geist in the Caribbean. Is that right? Can you just yeah. chat a little bit about how did, how did rum become this obsession? Right. Well, I, I've, I've been drinking rum for... Far too many years. I think I was first introduced to rum. Crikey, I wasn't probably eight years old, seven years old. My parents have always enjoyed rum. Uh, my father was in the Navy. Um, I've always had rum in my life, so to speak. Sounds a bit pathetic. Do you get it for true. breakfast when you're in the Navy? Is yes. that true? No, or is that a bit? No, no. <laughs> no, you don't. no, I once had Baileys on my muesli, but that's another story. Okay. Um, we... we uh, um, I've grown up with rum, let's just put it that way. Uh, the Royal Navy piece uh, and the whole sailors and rum thing is not the biggest part, actually, if I'm honest. Uh, what the Navy allowed me to do, of course, was travel around the world and I would sample spirits and indeed rum uh, around the world and, and get you know an understanding. But whilst I was in the Navy, I was just a, a sort of a low-level consumer, I guess. I had a couple of... Uh, Favorites. I didn't. I wasn't really obsessed with rum in that way. 
Um, left the Navy, went to work for Geeseline out in the Caribbean, and of course, all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by rum. Plethora of different rums, different styles, different islands, uh, different distilleries, different types of stills, etc., etc., etc. And when I had the time, uh, I didn't have a great deal of time, I have to say, but when I did have the time in the islands, I made it my uh, my business to go and have a look at these distilleries, uh, understand the different ways that rums were made, understand the different taste profiles, um, get to really understand the difference between an agricole and a, you know, a pot still English style, uh, you know, um, Spanish syrup, etc, etc, etc. And from that uh, obsession and looking into it, um, just really got into it. So, so I came home on leave from the Caribbean at one point and I, was, I got to the end of then one of my favorite rums, still is one of my favorite in, in terms of uh, economy and you know, gloppable, nice rum. It was uh, rum from Antigua, English Harbour, five-year-old. Um, very good rum, punches way above its weight in terms of uh, taste, uh, flavor profile for, for, for what it is. Got to the end of that bottle um, in the UK, thought I must be able to buy another one of these, surely. Uh, looked on the old Tinternet, no, not a chance. I'm not very good at searching on the internet, I have to say, but I couldn't find it. So I turned to, to my uh, buddy, who I've known for 31 years or so, uh, Giles, and said, mate, you fancy having a little bit of a, a laugh? And we set up a company where, you know, we emulate these gin clubs and we'll have a rum club. And we'll, we'll get hold of rums that people can't get off the shelf uh, normally. We'll send to our members and da-da-da. He said, yeah, go on then. So we did. We set up the rum club. Uh, was never going to make us any money, but what it did do was it really got us into the rum industry in the UK. We got people understanding uh, about us, we understood about them, uh, movement of rums, who drinks what, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and of course, in the sampling of these rums, before we were deciding which rums to send to our members, we would have a few of an evening, of course, and then you get the old, you know, drunk talk, and wouldn't it be great one day if we made our own rum? All a complete pipe dream was never going to happen. Right up to the point where I was made redundant in August 17, and whereupon I turned to Giles and said, are we going to do this then or what? Because if I get back on the train, we miss it. He sort of looked at me and said, are you serious? I said, absolutely. We took a deep breath, went into it, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Here we are. Amazing. Um, so that's, that's how we came about. My passion for rum is just... Uh, it's indescribable, really. I don't know. I just love the culture. I've spent so long in the Caribbean and the way that rum affects people's lives uh, in a good way. It can also affect it in a bad way, but we need to talk about that. But um, it, the way that the culture, the lifestyle, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no pretense with rum. I find rum to be quite binary. Uh, when someone comes to our, uh, our stand and tries our rum, the no and I hasten to add, that knows about rum, then uh, it's a binary reaction. It's, I like it, I don't like it. Unlike gin, per se, where there's all sorts of, oh, what can I smell, and, and what garnish do I have to put with this? There's, no, there's none of that. It's real life. Uh, and for me, rum is life. It's all about everything it connected to it. Uh, it's about culture, it's about having fun, it's about enjoying life with those, those you love, and rum plays a part in that. Why is it so different? 
the, the kind of the feeling that you get, like you say, you know, uh, gin might be about the nuances and, the, and what it comes with. Why is rum so much kind of, you know, raw and binary? I, I think it's because... Because it's history? I, I think, well, A, the history, uh, B, uh, the, the sort of the, uh, the, the, the areas where it's most concentrated. You know, if anybody's listening to this has been to the Caribbean, I'm sure there'll be several. You get that sense of, I don't know, uh, of well-being when you go to a Caribbean island. Uh, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that they, it's not that they don't care about anything, they just, you know, they, they just relax. And rum is a big part of that. Um, that's, the, that's the drink of choice when they're relaxing. Um, and that relaxation, uh, take for example Dominica, right, one of my favourite islands in the Caribbean. Third world country, essentially. Uh, unfortunately, completely wrecked by the last hurricane. I mean, it's in a real state at the moment. It's a beautiful, beautiful tropical island. Um, they have the largest number per capita of octogenarians and the largest number per capita of centrogenarians in the world on this tiny island, population of 70-odd thousand. That's no accident. That's not because they're all drinking from some special spring or eating some special fruit. It's because of their culture. You know, they're very, they're very Christian in their outlook. They're very loving of each other, but they relax and they know how to relax. And rum is a very big part of that. And that's, that's something that I, that's the passion and the, the, that I bring to it and that I want to bring to everybody else through what we produce here. Mm, nice. And so rum originated in the Caribbean, did it? Yeah, well... Depends who you talk to. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, and I'm not a massive rum historian, if the truth be told. Uh, there are accounts of a sugar-based wine uh, as far back as 400 years ago in, the, uh, in, in Asia. Um, if a Bayesian was listening to this, they'd be hopping up and down saying, it started in Barbados. Um, I'm not sure that it did. Uh, Brazil will lay a claim to producing a cachaça way before anything in the Caribbean, etc., etc. Uh, but I think if you really wanted to put a, an epicenter on rum focus, then of course it's the Caribbean. Yeah. And when you travel around, so your what was your role in Geest? Uh, I was I started off as the uh, superintendent cargo, so I was on the ships going from island to island. So um, Hispaniola, so Domin Dominica, Dominican Republic in the north. Uh, down to Trinidad in the south with 11 islands in between. Um, and then I became the uh, port operations manager, so I then oversaw that uh, operation. So I was in the Caribbean for three years, uh, and then for the final two years I was going backwards and forwards to the Caribbean, but running it from the UK. Okay, and was this generally produce that was then going back to, to Europe or to the US, or was this just between the islands? Uh, it was a bit of both, not, not, nothing to do with the US, but we, we would ex export from... Uh, uh, UK and Europe to the Caribbean, then distribute cargo around the Caribbean, uh, inter-island, etc., uh, and then fill up with bananas and go back to Portsmouth. Okay, so you were perfectly placed then to kind of go and explore the uh, the rum playground. Is it very different, kind of island to island? Is it different production techniques, different kind of styles? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, no two distilleries the same. Uh, absolutely, uh, either on the same island. Uh, they're all, they all have their own nuances, their different ways of doing things. You go from the, the older distilleries with you know, not so much money, uh, you know, open uh, vat fermentation is very prevalent in the Caribbean. Um, knackered old stills, the newer ones, uh, you know, pot stills, column stills, 
combination of both, you know, all sorts of styles and, and processes going on. Okay. And am I right in saying that there's different influences? So you might have a French influence or the British West Indies kind of influence. What, what, what are the nuances around? Well, I, I suppose in broad brush, and, and again, um, I put myself up to be shot down by the experts. I am not an expert in rum. Um, in this room, you're the best person we can <laughs> ask, I think. I mean, Ditch might argue. D but. D I suppose you, you, there's all sorts of talk at the moment about classification and categorization of rum. Uh, I'm not one of those people that requires rum to be put in a particular box and given a particular label. Uh, if you wanted to be purist about it, then you can make rum in a pot still, you can make rum in a column still, you can make rum in a combination of the two. Um, you can make rum with, uh, with sugarcane syrup, you can make rum with sugarcane juice, that's French West Indian. Uh, syrup tends to be more Spanish, so Northern South America, uh, Central America sort of location. You can make rum from molasses, which tends to be your more English style. English also tends to be linked with a pot still because it's a more unctuous, uh, full of fatter flavour, if you like. They're the ones that most people in this country um, are familiar with because that's the naval heritage, because the Navy bought such rums to feed its troops. Uh, way back um, and, and that's why uh, there's more of those types of rum in the UK than others. For example, Agricole, which is a fantastic rum, especially the unaged uh, Agricole, um, is very floral, fruity and quite earthy in flavour. Doesn't really resonate with the British palate because, because it's, well, through ignorance, and I don't mean that disingenuously, they've never tasted it before. So it doesn't chime in their brain when they smell it or taste it that this is rum because it's so different to an English pot still. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's so many different flavours. Our rum is a whole mishmash of a few different types. Right, so I was going to, that, that's perfect. So you, you basically, you, you get to do the research, you travel, it sounds lovely. Yeah, I'm sure there were some bad days, but travel the lines, you get to see actual production. Uh, opportunity presents itself because you get made redundant. So yeah, out of everything you learn, then what did you decide to apply? What is it about your kind of product and your rub that is different and so authentic? Well, you alluded to two red lines earlier and the second yes. of our red lines um, is very much, or was very much the, we're not making a molasses based rum. Right. Um, why? Why, uh, good question. Uh, I have nothing at all against molasses based rums whatsoever. Uh, in fact, my favourite rum in the world is a molasses-based rum. Can you just explain what that is? The, the rum? The molasses. What, what, what oh, right, so molasses, is the, ma molasses is the waste product or byproduct of sugar production. The black, sticky stuff. Uh, some people call it treacle. Um, it's, it, th that's what molasses is. Uh, so molasses produces quite a dry, acrid, and not particularly palatable unaged rum, white rum. Um, so think of Bacardi, think of Captain Morgan's. Uh, I don't know anybody that habitually drinks either of those two white rums neat because they're not that pleasant. You have to put sticky stuff into them to enjoy them. So you have Bacardi and Coke, etc. So it then becomes a sort of a slightly flavoured alcohol provider in a cocktail or a sticky drink. I didn't want to produce that because I wanted to produce a rum which could be taken neat, unaged. Now. Where did my knowledge of that come from? Well, really, if I'm honest, my time in Martinique and Guadeloupe, where Agricole uh, has a completely different culture uh, to, to other rums. Agricole is, as I said, made from 
sugarcane juice. So it's quite floral, quite earthy, quite vegetative in flavour and very floral on the nose. Their unaged versions, they tend to bottle at sort of 50 or 55%. Those rums are used in planter, as we would call uh, rum punch, or one of my favourite drinks on the entire world uh, with rum, a tea ponch. Now, a tea ponch is unaged uh, agricole or rum. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, fresh lime juice and sugar syrup or granulated sugar with ice. Spun up in a glass, very small drink, it's an aperitif. It's a beautiful way of enjoying rum. Now, you cannot drink or make an agricole which is particularly palatable with a molasses-based rum because of the property of the rum. Now, of course, a molasses-based rum when aged, when matured in, in barrels over several years or whatever, becomes a very, very beautiful product. But in its unaged state, is a little bit tricky. I, therefore, looked at how could we produce a rum in the UK that could make a tea ponche. And that was kind of my line. I wanted to make a tea ponche with our rum. So we then had to look at, well, bloody hell, how do you do that? You know, if you're not using molasses, how do you do it? We don't live in the tropics, so we can't use sugarcane juice because juice goes off within 48 hours of being extracted from the plant. Syrup's too expensive. What are we going to do? So we tried a few products uh, and we found a product, I won't give you the trade name because I don't want to give away all of our secrets, but we found a product which is basically, not basically, it is entirely, 100% organic dehydrated sugarcane juice from Costa Rica. That was handy. And that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it, you know, that's, it is, it's a, a wrong seal moment, it is what it says on the tin. <clears throat> if you rehydrate it, it produces sugarcane juice. Right. So we did that and I made an agricole and it was very nice. Can't make an agricole in the UK at the moment because people don't understand it enough and wouldn't buy it. It would be, you know, it's hard enough selling an artisan white rum which tastes great and is familiar, let alone doing something that's slightly more unfamiliar. Plus the fact I think the French might get a little bit twitchy if you started to call it agricole in the same way that they do with Calvados, Champagne, etc, etc. So, I then came upon the idea of, well, why don't we boil this juice and make a syrup? Some of my favourite rums in the world are syrup-based rums. Take, for example, the House of Botran in Guatemala. That's a syrup-based rum. It's a very, very nice rum. What does it produce? It produces a slightly sweeter, softer, lighter rum than a molasses. So I boiled the syrup up in order to take away 95% of that strong, floral, earthy element that you get in agricole, but distinctively leaving 5% so that there was enough of a nod to agricole to work in a tea ponche. Okay. So that floral, dry finish at the end works in a, in a tea ponche. And, and bear in mind, as I said before, my whole outset was to produce a rum in the UK that can make a decent tea ponche. And I nailed it, I nailed it pretty quickly. Um, and that was it. That was how we were going to make our rum. The next problem, of course, was how the hell do we source this product from Costa Rica in enough volume to be able to make it? I'm not particularly good, as I said earlier, at looking things up on the internet and finding stuff. However, Giles is incredibly good at that, and he did that. And he found the company that makes it, been making it in Costa Rica for 50-odd years, um, and we got in contact with them, and we now buy direct from them, and we have no problems at all in very... Uh, uh, frequent deliveries of this product. 
Amazing. What so was that product for? What, what else was it being used for? Not well, that. it's used in the confectionery uh, trade uh, okay. quite extensively, um, both in Europe and in the UK. Amazing. Yeah. How did you come across it? Uh, just by, we just bought a whole bunch of different sugars, really, I right. guess, or, or rather sugar-based products, cane-based products. And we made a few rums. We made a molasses rum. We made a, a syrup rum from syrup that we got from Louisiana. Um, when I looked into how much, and that made a really nice rum. But when I looked into, let's get this syrup from Louisiana and make our rum, uh, you know, we kind of stopped when the bill was approaching £100,000. You know, so it was, it was just not tenable. Um, and we were, as I say, I wouldn't say lucky because you make your own luck, but we found it. Um, we had a chat with them. They were very happy and pleased that we wanted to use their product for the production of rum. We've got a very good relationship with them. And, and as I say, it, it works and it makes a very, very good rum. Amazing, isn't it? It reminds me of that thing that, you, you know, you can't join the dots looking forwards, only looking backwards. Yeah. It? But the fact you spent so much time in the Caribbean and you come yeah. across that kind of product. But it all starts, I think, with having that drive for authenticity, which is why I'm sat here and came to see you because... You know, like I, we, we get, I get to go and meet lots of gin people or invited to meet lots of gin people, but you don't always have that story. So the process of actually making rum is more time consuming basically than making gin. It is. Can you just tell us how do you, yeah, how do you actually make very the rum? quickly the stages of making uh, the rum. Uh, we, get the, uh, we get the product, as I said, um, we rehydrate it, we boil it to make a syrup. That whole process uh, will take, you know, best part of the morning into the early afternoon. We then uh, put the syrup into our fermenters, let down with water, inoculate with yeast, um, and then actually, and, and this will come as a surprise to some people that know anything about fermentation and rum, we actually ferment our rum for two weeks. Right. Uh, and that's deliberate. Well, we're not trying to speed up the process, we're not trying to hammer it in there in four days. Uh, when I tell rum producers uh, that, uh, they, they tend to go, what, really? How, why so long? But actually, if you know a little bit about rum, and, and trust me, I've spoken to many people, and in fact, only the other week in Miami, I was talking to uh, the head distiller from uh, the West Indies distillery in Barbados. Um, they are now looking at extending their fermentation period because it produces far more congeners, far more compounds that give you the flavor if you let, anyway, I'm getting too geeky now. Oh, I like um, geek. <laughs> so two, two weeks, produces a, a sugar wine uh, somewhere in around about 11% uh, by volume. Uh, we then put, um, when that's ready, we put 500 litres into Sophie and we do what's called a wash run. So the wash run takes a day uh, and that we take all of the distillate that comes off. There's no cuts or anything like that uh, that people may be familiar with with distillation. That wash is stored in a tank until we have enough. So let's say we've now got 500 litres of wash, which is about 50 to 52% by volume, goes back into Sophie and we do a spirit run. So we do a heads, hearts, tails, hearts being used to make the run. So all told, you're looking at just over three weeks to produce rum. Okay, excellent. And if we're making our spice rum or our forum garden rum, you've got to slot in another 24 hours in there because we steep the, uh, the botanicals or the spices for 24 hours before we do the spirit run. I know you're going to talk about ageing you know, in a minute, but we are certainly um, the UK's first distillery in history to be ageing rum in barrel, which you know, in two and a half years' time we'll have our uh, 18, 12, three-year-old rum, which is very, very exciting. Um, we are very, very impatient here at the Portsmouth Distillery Company. We want it to, Wishing we want it to know. You understand the stuff barrel's going, come on! Yeah. So, you know, but again, you can't rush through these processes. There are ways of, 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 of false ageing, but uh, you can tell the difference. And, you know, we're in it for the long game. We're not here to cheat. Yeah. 
No, I think it's a good, it's a, you know, it's an exciting time for, um, yeah, for spirits. But I guess a lot of that is around education, I guess, because most people don't know exactly. the differences between their runs. They don't know their history. So does that, is that part of your kind of, I suppose, partly the opportunity, but partly also the challenge is you've got to educate people in the first place around Very, very, very much. Very much so. I mean, you, know, you can go into, into, into a, say, a cocktail bar or you know, into a certain pub, you know, and people behind the bar may well know their runs or may well know, you know, all the different sort of categories, and, uh, you know, across the, the, well, the general spirit sector. But of course, it's, it's getting them on board because they're, they're the ones that are going to be promoting the product on the bar to the customers. Um, so a lot, a lot of the cases when you deal with independent wine merchants uh, as such, you know, across the southeast that stock our products, we leave a sample bottle in each of those places because they need to give their customers a, a taster of it. So they're doing the education as well. Yeah. Because just standing there trying to sell a bottle of white rum at £32, you know, on you know, retail price, people just can't get that. But when they try it, they understand the difference. It's not Bacardi, it's not the cheap yeah. stuff from Sainsbury's. And so that's the key in terms of in terms of education, yeah. Yeah. And presumably you're pitching this at the kind of the higher end restaurants and bars. You're not trying to get this into into Weatherspoons, I'm guessing. Is this uh, is it, or you or you or you don't mind. But uh, I suppose where is it easier? Is it you know, you're getting more recognition at that premium end of the market where they might be used to uh, spirits in other categories at that level, or actually are, are the doors opening anyway? I'll, I'll just or jump in before yeah, he answers on. if yeah. I could. As I said earlier, <laughs> rum is about people and about everybody, right? And, and everyone enjoying it. I don't care if we sell it in the corner shop, Weatherspoons, or the Ritz Carlton, or whatever, it's for everybody. Yes, but price wise, <laughs> I suppose it must be quite different. So, so can you convince people at a price point in in Weatherspoons in the same way? As you not can so easily, in a no. But uh, not I reckon you could. I reckon you could, but you could. You show me a tattoo yeah. and just uh, <laughs> standing uh, there in front of the bar. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's always going to be a slightly you know harder sell. So we have got um, uh, a, a flagship Weatherspoons um, down in uh, just opposite the Guild Hall. Um, which will be doing a big splash on okay. on our bits and pieces, um, but again, you know, clientele for Wellspoons is different to Waitrose. To, yeah, you know, so it's because I, I guess it's, it's just perception. But one yeah. of the things that seems to uh, again come up regularly in this in in the podcast is this change, particularly with the youth now, kind of you know the younger generation is around much more grazing with alcohol than it is about going out and getting kind yeah. of you know shit. Very much so. Um, yeah. So they they tend to go, and it's it's probably the same you know with with meat. It's about kind of you know eating less and having better and yeah. it's the same with booze drink yeah. less but drink better so Absolutely. rather than going out and having five Bacardis and Cokes go out and have you know a couple of of, of decent rums well we can't like to have five <laughs> yeah, decent rums <laughs> well you can, you can you can do that in our age <laughs> but unfortunately apparently if you're going out and chatting to uh, the millennials uh yeah, it's a little bit um, different. Do you think, uh, Vince, that millennial, that, that new generation, because rum, again, I suppose, I don't know, the association with the Navy and the kind of old boys with beards, hypothetically drinking it, how do you, know, how do you get it into the kind of, yeah... Well, as an old generation? boy with a beard... Oh, yeah, go on, then, <laughs> since, since you fit that niche. <laughs> the, the, I think uh, the experience we have of people uh, approaching our... Um, gazebo or whatever at, at markets, at fairs, and also people coming here on tours that fit into the category of the millennial is that they are very interested. Um, and I guess really, I'm about to contradict myself, is if they're interested, they're interested. Um, and, and, and they will buy, they will enjoy. Um, it's really about grabbing their attention in the first place. It's about saying, hey, do you know what, guys? 
white rum isn't, and let's just talk about 1968 and white rum before we talk about any other products, but white rum isn't just about Bacardi or Captain Morgan's or Sainsbury's special Caribbean white rum or whatever. It isn't about getting a product that's nine pounds in a bottle. It's about sampling some good liquor. Um, and that's the same with everything. It's the same with gin, etc. Now, the gin essence didn't just happen by accident. People don't quite happily spend somewhere, some now, upwards of 45 pounds on a bottle of gin because it's absolutely, you know, it's life-changing, uh, you know, cancer-curing or something like that. They buy it because of the story, because of the provenance, because of the taste profile. Um, that genescence has really helped us and helping us with the uh, resurgence, or not resurgence, we never used to make it here, but the growth of the rum market. Because now people do not balk at paying 30 pounds for a bottle of spirits. And that's purely down to gin, absolutely down to gin. So when people buy a bottle of 68 from us, they're not complaining about the cost. They really aren't, because it's quite usual now to spend 30 pounds, 32 pounds on a bottle of spirit, because that's what you do with gin. In fact, you pay more than that, as I said. Um, the point and the difficulty for Ditch is getting people over the threshold, I guess, if you like, to try it in the first place. Because generally speaking, um, and without sounding way too uh, conceited, if we get someone to try it, they'll generally buy it because it's really good. Yeah. Um, and as I said, they're no longer scared of paying that kind of money for a bottle of spirit because it's now commonplace with gin. Yeah, I think access to stories behind brands now is so much easier. We used to, you know, unless you had big bucks, you, had, you, know, you were inevitably dominated by the big players because yeah. they had the kind of, uh, you know, the money to put the adverts in the newspapers or on television and stuff like that. But now with the internet and with social media and with Instagram and all that kind of stuff, you can, you can get this kind of ground up rather than top down yeah. uh, resurgence, I suppose. So Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely happened. Well, it's things like we're doing now. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. also saying that, you know, our, our marketing budget has said, you know, we're not Diageo, we're not Panerica. As you said, we, we don't have the ability to do adverts in the back of the Sunday Times. So I mean, our marketing budget is pouring people samples, getting people to try it. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the way we get our, our name out then. Yeah, no, true. Yeah, and you're right, podcasts are you know, interesting in the fact that 10 minutes after this goes live, you know, people in the Caribbean can actually kind of listen to the story of some crazy Brits who in a, in a, a wet and damp kind of old fort. Are, uh, uh, yeah, Absolutely, and then, and then come back at me for saying, it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't have huge numbers of listeners, I don't think, in Barbados. I'll check the figures and send them, and send them to you later. Um, you said something earlier which made me chuckle, and I just want to talk a little bit about um, yeah, production again, I suppose. But I think you said something about you know, pumping 500 litres into Sophie, and I realised that a lot of people probably won't know who Sophie is. So, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, I, where I, you're... I, tend to, I tend to make that mistake quite yeah. often. I, I now find myself at the beginning of tours, quite often if there's a lot of uh, females on the tours, very quickly asking... Is there a Sophie present? Because I have, um, I have, I've been caught on a couple of occasions where I've been talking about getting inside Sophie, etc., um, and young ladies getting quite embarrassed. I can um, imagine. Sophie yeah. Wu is our 500 litre pot still. Okay. Um, uh, she's named Sophie Wu because um, the lady that we dealt with uh, from the company in China that sold us the the equipment uh, was called Sophie Wu. Um, that sounds completely unimaginative, I know, but actually the reason uh, we named her Sophie Wu, very used to, as I am, working in different time zones from the UK, I very quickly found myself being that ignorant Western bloke sending emails of all times of day expecting an answer. 
The reason I was expecting an answer wasn't because I was being some sort of, you know, hard-ass British businessman. It was because I'd completely forgotten that the woman I was communicating with was several time zones away because she was communicating. Um, and when I finally sort of sat back and looked at that, I thought, do you know what? That's bloody dedication. You know, three o'clock in the morning. Really? Wow. She didn't have to do that. Yeah. So uh, out of honour for that dedication, we named our still... Sophie Wu. Now, she has sold several stills to several distilleries in the UK. We are the first to honour her by calling our still Sophie. She knows, and she's very pleased about that. Really? She'll have to come over sometime. Yeah, well, she was over last summer, but she wanted to get down, but she didn't manage it. So at some point she will. Yeah, Yeah, at some point you need a photo of Sophie Wu with Sophie Wu. Yeah. Uh, Why China? Why is it from there? Um, Quite simply, cost, to be honest. The quality of the equipment is right up there. It's very, very good equipment. Um, that it makes, you know, it's good. It works well. It functions well. It's efficient. Um, but it's cost. Uh, we looked at other stills and other uh, still makers, um, and you know, bespoke packages because we needed to have something bespoke because of the shape of the casemate. Um, and if we bought something in in the UK, if we were lucky, we might be able to squeeze it three and a half times what we paid for this rig. If we looked into Europe, Germany, four and a half times. And when you're a startup, as as we were, um, and literally we were moving one step, one step, one step, because neither myself nor Giles had the capital to put into this to buy the equipment. Um, we literally just went one stage to the next stage to the next stage. Um, and the stage of buying the, the equipment was predicated on a bit of sort of shuffling around of house and stuff. And you know, I won't get into the whys and wherefores, but we managed to scrape enough money together to buy this particular still. Now, it's not a substandard one. It's not anything other than a very, very good piece of equipment. But like I say, if we bought the equivalent in the UK, manufactured or, or, or indeed in Europe, three and a half to four and a half times the price, just out of our league. Yeah. And I have to say, I will not be buying a British or a, you know, I won't say never, never, but uh, it, when we get the next still, it'll be another one from China from the same people. Yeah, because you've been so impressed with it. Yeah. yeah. And the price. It does. It looks awesome, actually. Yeah, yeah so thank it's you. an authentic uh, bit of kit. It came with no instructions. I think we were chatting earlier. Well, yeah. Very few instructions. Well, not even t- a picture. Typically, yeah, we just sort of laid it down on the floor and went, oh, what goes where? <laughs> and just moved a few pipes around until we thought we got it right. And then maybe had to remove a couple of others until we got it. And okay. yeah. Did it, was it back like the you know, Navy engine room? I'm thinking not every, maybe that's a benefit of buying one in the UK. You might at least get some instructions, but you, know, you had a practical background at least so you could bolt some things together. It does yeah. look a bit like a ship's engine in some it ways. It does, so. and I think it's a case of, you know, we'll, you know you've also got to, I think um, Giles and I, when we, when we did all the, uh, the restoration and everything of this, uh, of this place, uh, Giles is incredibly practical in terms of um, plumbing and carpentry and all that kind of stuff. I'm not so bad myself. Um, and we just we kind of adopt the how hard can it be if we can't do it we'll get someone in that knows what they're doing kind of attitude to to renovation uh, and we did exactly the same with the still and, and and she went together quite easily in the end yeah good I think she was happy to be here frankly uh, yeah she seems she seems she seems very happy she's in the sheltered considering that we're being battered by a storm um, Ditch mentioned uh, just now the aged rum. Is it the same process then for at least starting the aged rum and then as a case of barley? Or can we just talk a little bit about, you know, what was the motivation and how do you make it? Yeah, the, the, the stuff we've laid down for age is, uh, is a sense of, uh, ostensibly 1968 rum. Right. So we make the batch of rum. Uh, we put it in our holding spirit tank. That sits there at sort of 
76 to 78 percent uh, by volume and we then put it into our casks uh, at 68 percent um, so we let it down very slightly put it into our 200 liter x jim beam bourbon barrels um, and it sits there for for three five and beyond years turning every six months checking it uh, etc so that's that's it it's very simple yeah. um, it's the same rum uh, it's just changing as it matures in the barrel Okay, so and literally picking up the flavours then from those old barrels. That's right, yeah, and and a bit of colour. So from the charring on the inside of the barrel, it's it's a it's a very well known uh, rum aging convention of using bourbon barrels because uh, the, the the law in America uh, dictates that you can only use a bourbon barrel once. So therefore, once they've aged their bourbon in it, it's effectively dead to them. So they flog them on, uh, and mostly they are purchased by the rum business because the rum. Uh, a rum aged in a bourbon barrel that's already charred can take on some of that. Um, it doesn't taste of bourbon at the end, but it does indeed uh, take on some of the, the flavours and, and, you know, the vanillins from the wood and the lignins, etc. It all comes together over a period of time. A little bit of reduction because it uh, evaporates a little bit, etc., etc., and you end up with a fantastic product. Now, we've, tried, we've got one coming up for a year, uh, we've tried it once. I'll be trying it again next month. When I say try next it, I'm month, only, I thought you were going to say in a minute. I, was <laughs> I only take a tiny little piece out of it. And uh, yeah, at the six-month point, it already started to take a little bit of colour, but the flavour profile had really started to change. So I'm expecting it to be quite different at the next check. Um, but it's all going in the right direction, uh, is, is I suppose the key point, to, to the point where we produce our... Uh, 1812 in two years time in a bottle and it's going to be fantastic what I will say however is that there's a lot of talk about color and everything else in in the UK about colors of rum and everyone gets seduced to dark rum it's got to be dark rum if it's not dark it's not good etc etc I have no idea what color this rum will be in three years time and I care even less it will be bottled probably in an opaque bottle I care about color so little uh, so that when you pour it out, it will be whatever colour it is, but it will have been aged for three years in ex Jim Beam bourbon barrels in the right environment, and it will taste fantastic. Yeah. So when will it be ready? I'm getting quite excited. <laughs> well, we're looking at, um, I suppose we're looking at summer 20... Just making a note in my diary. 22. Summer 2022. It does feel like a very, very long way away. Yeah, <coughs> time flies. Um, is that going to be a problem that he doesn't care what colour it is for you, Ditch, when you're out no, on the road? Not or, at all. Uh, not no, not at all. Vince is very right. And he <laughs> says that people are, are obsessed with you know the, the colour of rum. They say whatever colour it comes out at. And I say it's already after six months, you know, taking on colour. Um, so we should get a bit of colour. But whatever colour it is, that is our three-year-old. Nice. And we're going to be very, very proud of it. Yeah. And where is it? It's stored in one of these casements then? Well, we've got, uh, we've got our initial 1,200 litres uh, in six barrels in our in our tasting room, which uh, which you'll see shortly. Um, and then we've got three other casemates at the other side of the fort, which is going to be our official ageing room. And so we're trying to fill um, a 200 litre barrel every two or three weeks. Um, so the case makes it the other side of the fort, um, literally no electricity because we don't need it, do a concrete floor for the barrels to sit on and a very, very large lock on the door. Yeah. I imagine this is a, a good environment for ageing rum. It is. I mean, in terms of these two case mates here, where, where Sophie sits in the distillery room, um, obviously the, the temperature fluctuates because when she's on, creates temperature when she's off, less so. But our the ageing rooms, um, because the walls are about six to eight foot thick, uh, it, Almost a constant temperature, whether it's peeing down with rain or if it's 
blaring sunshine in August. So we were very, very lucky. And again, bring it all back to Fort Cumberland, you know, fantastic place for us to be, but an awesome place to be aging rum. It is, that is, yeah, literally destiny, yeah. What yeah. would you, if you hadn't found this place, were there any others on, on the uh, market, bits when you were looking, or? Um, I can't answer that question because we were very lucky that we, we scored up. on first shot, so. Did, did you know the place existed? I knew it was here, uh, but like most people, um, had never been in, didn't know what it was, didn't know what to expect. For some strange reason, because you can't see it, I guess, from the road um, uh, outside the gate, I thought it was underground. I don't know, I had this sort of like weird James Bond bunker kind of thing going on in my head. Um, and when we arrived to have a look at it, I was just astounded at the, at the beauty of the place. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful place. Yeah, it was literally uh, destiny. So um, we've mentioned Giles was your co-founder. Yeah. Is that right? And, and you were quite quickly, bearing in mind you're a startup and quite often of a startup, it's just you know one person doing yeah. everything for the first few years. Yeah. But you were quite astute in making sure you had uh, the right team around you, I suppose. So yeah. uh, can you just explain a little bit about, I suppose, your, your three roles and what you focus on differently? Well, um, yeah, the, the, in terms of myself and Giles, uh, as I said, we, we've known each other for coming on for 31 years. We met um, when uh, we were at uh, Dartmouth, uh, Britannia Royal Naval College um, in 89. Um, uh, we, well, we didn't gel then at all, actually, truth be told. I was a senior, <laughs> he just joined, and uh, yeah, uh, I don't think he really liked me at all. But anyway, that, by the by, <laughs> we, uh, uh, it's a bit like some sort of public school anyway, but we'll talk about that over a drink at some point. The, the, um, we then uh, accidentally sort of came together a couple of times uh, where we then um, forged a, a really good friendship. We served together in two ships. Um, we had a very, very similar career path uh, within air defense uh, in, in, in the RN and subsequently by accident left in 2012, um, both of us. And uh, it was at that point that uh, we, as I said, we came together in the business sense. We, we were friends, we used to have a beer a few times, etc. whatever, uh, once when we left the Navy. And then in the 15, we decided to, to do the Rum Club. I've told you all about that already. Um, what he brings to the party that I don't is uh, a level business head. He went, having left the Navy, went off and did um, sort of a management consultant job. He had a, a, a franchise in a cost reduction business. So had to do all that really dull sort of paperwork stuff, VAT, you know, um, and he's got a good head for that. He has a very good head for that sort of what I call backroom business stuff. The sort of stuff that a gobby creative idiot like me finds incredibly boring and doesn't want to get involved with. Is he actually so, working now? Is that basically it? You're here chatting, talking stuff, and, and he's, he's behind the background there, actually doing, 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 doing his job. Finances, doing his job, and that's Got what you. he does. And and not least that he's incredibly good with his hands, as I say, in terms of uh, building stuff and and plumbing and carpentry and all that kind of stuff. So without getting too sort of you know bromancy about it, it's a very yin and yang kind of relationship. He will never pull me back or rein me in with creative uh, aspect, but will very quickly bring some reality to it. Mm. So good idea, Vince, but, and the but is always a very good but, the but is always a very well considered but, and that's, that's how it works. So that's how the thing kind of grew and, and gained momentum and how we got to the point where we 
where we got to where we were able to buy a still, etc. And that's all down to him. That's not down to me. That's, I'm the one saying, we need this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. He's the one working out how we do it. You had sacrificed yourself by travelling around the Caribbean researching <coughs> rum, though. I had, you? and that so was very can't difficult. Can't take that away from you, then, really. That was very <laughs> difficult. Um, and then, so then, uh, in the course of doing all of that, we met Ditch whilst we were doing our rum shack in the uh, Portsmouth Seafood Festival. Ditch came to speak to us because he'd supplied some Prosecco via his uh, previous uh, job that he was doing. Um, and he professed a real uh, love of rum and the thought of maybe a distillery, etc. And to be honest, at that stage, we hadn't really come up with the idea. It was more a sort of a, it was still that sort of, you know, uh, pie in the sky. Because this was June before the August when I was made redundant. Um, when it happened, when we decided to go for it, and we got to this place that we're sitting in to a certain standard, obviously we then started to think about, well, this is all very good, but what the hell do we know about selling liquor? And I said, well, that guy Ditch we spoke to, he does it, so let's get hold of him. So we did. Um, and we brought him on, on board um, sort of full-time in, in September of, crikey, where are we now? 18, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, sort of basically just through all that sales thing, uh, at him because I don't know I mean I can sell it doing what I'm doing now but in terms of you know knowing who to speak to how to set up a business meeting and all that kind of stuff in terms of the mechanisms uh, that's his bag and that's what he does so that so that that, that was the three set up then um, so all working in our own areas but crossing over as well of course yeah. um, and helping out as we do and then in January this year we took um, our first employee on uh, Joshua and he we did that because, um, without sounding sort of pathetic, uh, I was starting to drown a little bit. <laughs> you know, one man band trying to make everything, trying to think of new products, etc., etc., was getting a little bit tight. Uh, and and he has just completely eased the load perfectly. Um, and and I'm sort of in the best way that I can trying to train him really into uh, into being a distiller. So the plan being that he will pretty much take on the distillation role going forward and I'll just do the gobby creative bit, yeah. if you like. Yeah, I think it's great. A lot of people listen to this podcast tend to be startups in uh, in hospitality, although it's a complete uh, range of people, but there's a number of them because of certainly at the sort of pop-up street food level, low barriers to entry. But I thought it was it was a great sort of structure, really, just really simple, three people, the creative gobby one, the kind of back of house admin kind of, you know, run the business one, and then somebody who actually does the sales. And often, you know, any one of those that's missing is pretty catastrophic, really. All yeah. too often, it's the gobby creative one with the idea and the entrepreneur that tries to build the entire business. And it's quite late in the game where they start to realise, shit, I do need somebody who's going to you know, count the beans and actually make it work. And then, yeah, how the bloody hell are we going to sell it? It doesn't matter how good the product is. Yeah, if absolutely. we don't sell it, it won't and work. The, the absolute, absolute bottom line is, yes, it was my crazy idea, yeah. but I could not have done any of it without Giles and we couldn't be doing what we're doing now without Ditch. Yeah. And that's that's the bottom line. It's all about the team. So yeah. what was your background, Ditch, before you came into this? Uh, working for an independent uh, wine shipper, importer, um, sort of wholesaler in Hampshire. Right. Quite, um, quite a well-established one. What made you make the jump from going from, you know, uh, I don't know, a salary and a career and some sort of uh, security, I suppose, and thinking, I'm going to go and join a startup with a crazy ex and Navy <laughs> man and, uh, and well, make, make well, rum? Well, to be quite honest, it was an absolute no-brainer and a fantastic opportunity. 
um, to join you know, uh, an, an amazing venture. Um, you know, it is a, you know, we do have a very long road ahead, um, but we are going in the right direction. And uh, so to be part of uh, such a dynamic and innovative team uh, is, is a wonderful place to be right now. Yeah. So you were submersed in wine world for quite a long time. It was. I mean, it was, it was you know, I guess, sort of 80% wine and sort of 20% spirits, um, you know, sort of in the, in the retail and trade sector. Uh, so, you know, to be able to come on board, you know, and to bring, you know, yes, of course, you know, a nice book of con initial contacts to get mm -hmm. our, our spirits out. When we first had our gin came out in um, November 2018, you know, I was probably very quick on the phone. I'd already teed people up that we are going to have our products coming out, you know, November, December. Um, and so, you know, I could hit the road and sort of hit the, you know, hit the ground running, basically. Is it, is it very different taking a sort of plucky startup kind of sales mentality to maybe, you know, a wine company that had been around for years, selling a product that had been around for years? Well, I guess so. But I mean, I guess from the wine, from the wine company, it was, uh, it was, there was like two, two and a half thousand products that we were, we were hawking. So, um, you know, a lot of sort of watering down in terms of, in terms of the sales process. I mean, here, when the gin came out, um, in sort of mid-November in 2018, you know, literally the first bottle that came off the production line, I was straight across the road to the marina bar, <laughs> the South Sea Marina, going, here's our product, you can be our first customer. Excellent. Um, and so, you know, to say to be making these innovative products, you know, is, 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 it's been awesome in terms of, you know, it's easier to be so much more passionate in the sales process. Yeah, okay. Um, Vince, that kind of uh, requirement, I guess, that, that red line around the authenticity and genuineness of the product, um, that's clear in the fact that you want to make an age rum and, and your kind of approach to life. But actually, you know, how is the how is the industry kind of recognising what you do? I think you were in Miami recently, were you? And are you, are you kind of getting that recognition, I suppose, of actually, you know, um, that you deserve? Uh, well, I, I would never say that anyway. Um, I don't think I'm deserving of anything other than you know what I get, frankly, but the the um, we're still very very early days in the rum production world in the UK. Um, I think there's a lot of um, skepticism uh, around it. Um, a lot of sort of you know, well, they'll never be able to make rum like everybody else. That sort of thing. Now I'm not saying anyone said that about us. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I get a sense when we do rum festivals or we go to these congresses, all these conferences, etc. There's a whole heap of talk, always talk, about Bayesian rums, about Central American rums, about rums that are established, proper houses that have been there for since the year dot. Uh, nobody really talks about UK rum and the development of and the distillation of, uh, because really there aren't that many of us. Uh, and I alluded to the my worry bead earlier on. Um, there is a chap. Um, Ian Burrell, um, who is the self-professed uh, global rum ambassador. Uh, I don't mean that disingenuously, that's what he calls himself. Um, and he, he is about to, this year, do a, uh, a real push on UK rums. So I think really uh, we will start to see a little bit more traction and understanding and interest within the UK of what the Portsmouth Distillery does and how we do it. Um, in terms of uh, he will champion our gear because he likes it, he's tried it, he enjoys it. Um, there are other people in the industry that are key people that are also uh, enjoy it and like it and want to champion it. So I think um, this year, the, the, the UK Rum Festival in October um, in London um, is having a, a UK rum production area and we'll be involved in that. We'll have a table there for the, for the three days. 
Um, so we will start to gain, I think, recognition, um, I hope. But if I'm absolutely honest, I'm not really that bothered about that. I'm really not. Uh, where we will come to our ascendancy, where people will not be able to ignore us, is in summer 2022, when we start with our aged products. Because it is all about the age. Um, and once that comes off and is bottled and starts going, our biggest problem is not, is not having enough rather than actually being recognised. Yeah. How many spare casements did you say there were here ready for you to yeah. fill with Asian yeah. rum? Well, it's of course, it, as with all these things, it's a cash flow thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it, we, we can't just, you know, we don't get sent the product, the raw material to make, uh, uh, to make the rum for free. It has to be paid for. Um, and that's the thing that has, uh, that's why we haven't made as much and laid down as much in the first year as we would like to have done, because we just couldn't afford to buy the raw material. Yeah. We're hoping that this year things are uh, gaining a bit more momentum, so we can, and we will, as Ditch said, every two to three weeks lay down a barrel. Okay. So that in 2023, certainly the flow will start a bit better because we'll have invested more into it in this year, yeah. and that's the plan. It's going to be exciting, isn't it? If you sell out in two weeks in 2022, you're going to be going, man, I wish we'd gone and yeah, sold the house. True, <laughs> but but then again, you know... You might not sell it, so then well, you'll be grateful. Well, <laughs> I think we'll definitely sell it, but it's more a case of, you know, um, what is it, uh, you know, scarcity breeds um, desire, yep. let's say. Yeah, true. You know, um, yeah. and it's economy of, you know, of scale and everything else. If, 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 it, uh, if it flies off the shelves, then we put the price up. Yeah, that makes sense. You know. So um, what's the vision ultimately? You're, you're sticking to rum, you've, you've done a gin. Are you going to do more spirits or are you very much focused on... Yeah, that? no, um, we, we, we are... Uh, rum is our thing. Um, and uh, the, 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 the spirits that we have on our shelves right now are here to keep the lights on to age the rum. Right. Uh, bottom line. Yeah. Uh, I have just developed another gin, um, which is very, very different to Fort Gin. In, in so much that Fort Gin is, is very akin to a, a Geneva, uh, so it's longer on the palate. Uh, I've developed a, a more of a London Dry for the next one, and that's going to be called Tudor Gin. Um, that came about through uh, discussions with uh, the uh, Mary Rose Trust, um, which is um, here in Portsmouth, of course, the Mary Rose, um, Henry VIII's flagship that was raised in 1982. Fantastic museum, really good thing to look at in the dockyard if you're coming down this way. Uh, please support it because they need your help. Uh, and, and in that, and our drive to be a player in Portsmouth and give something back, uh, we've developed this gin for our own sale, but we're going to give a sizable donation for every bottle sold to the Mary Rose Trust. Um, so it's a win-win for everybody, really. Um, so that's the next product coming up off the line, if you like, um, hopefully in the next two months. Depends on how long it takes to have the labels produced. Um, we're also having a little bit of a play with um, a Calvados type product uh, because we made cider and we make cider here. So we've got a bunch of that that we've kept to one side that we're going to run through the still. We've done it already in our practice still. It makes a very nice um, Apple spirit, so it'd be more an o, a sort of an eau de vie rather than a Calvados. Not planning to age it, although I might have a little bit of a play with a little barrel. Um, and again, that will be a cellar door product as opposed to out to trade. Um, so all the while, I'm still always playing and practicing. Uh, having just been um, across the pond uh, recently, uh, yes. Um, I tried a couple of other products and, and got re, uh, reintroduced to a product called Shrub, which is a, um, 
an orange rum liqueur. So I'm currently having a play with perhaps producing a shrub uh, towards the end of the year or maybe in the summer or something. So just really, it'll be low level little things that will add to our inventory and add to our sort of, you know, uh, people understanding. We also make spirits for other people. Uh, I won't necessarily say who they are here today, but we do that. That that adds to the coffers in the background, um, and it also helps me as a distiller to be able to uh, to develop and practice. Uh, and that's all very important stuff to do, so that I can bring that that experience back into the Portsmouth Distillery for the development of products down the line. I think it's so important in, a, in an industry that moves so fast that you can focus on that sweet spot of uh, creativity and yeah. kind of new product and stuff, which is why it's good to have the team around you. Um, Ditch, has export come up at all yet, or is it all UK-based so far? At the moment, it is UK-based. Um, we are looking at uh, obviously different distribution channels uh, this year, which is going to be uh, pretty much my main focus uh, and export. You know, We've already been talking to people in China, but I think we need to... Uh, to walk before we run on things like that, uh, in terms of understanding the mechanics of the export market. Uh, but it's certainly something where we want, where we want to be. Um, we want to, we want our rums to be, you know, and the gin. Hence, we call it Fortune, not Portsmouth Gin. You know, we like it to be, you know, a worldwide available product. Um, you know, we're not a cottage industry. Um, well, I guess we sort of are, but we're not a, a lifestyle, you know, business. We do, we do want to be, to be out there. You know, our dream. Um, at the end of the day, uh, our vision. Our, yeah, so our dream is to get off a plane in the Caribbean and see our rum in duty free. Excellent. All right, <laughs> perfect. Well, I look forward to that. Um, if people want to buy it, Ditch, where's the best place to go? Can they buy it directly from, from you guys and from the website? Obviously, and are there any particular kind of bar groups? You mentioned Weatherspoons. I can't give them another plug, but anywhere else people should go to drink it. Well, we're in sort of you know, the, all, the, all the main independent wine merchants, uh, you know, stretching from Bournemouth to, to, to sort of Chester to Brighton up to sort of Guildford. We do have a website, which is a, you know, a pretty, well, it's, a, it's a very functional website. We, we, we're going to look to update it uh, this year. Um, but yeah, no, all available. What's you know, the web address? It is uh, www.theportsmouthdistillery.com. Okay, perfect. Any particular, if people want to follow the journey, any particular social channels that you're more hot on? Are you... Uh, you we're on social on, media as well, Vince? We're, we're on three. Yeah. Uh, so we're on uh, Facebook, um, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. Facebook and uh, Instagram are the Portsmouth Distillery, uh, and uh, Twitter is at Pompey Still. Okay, perfect. I will put some uh, links as well on the show notes for this. So humansofhospitality.co.uk, uh, people can link through. Um, it's brilliant. I love it. I, I genuinely will be back. I've noted in the diary. What month in summer 2022 have you decided yet? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, uh, I, you uh, might just find me camped outside yeah, looking not, very thirsty. Not quite sure yet. I might come uh, in the yeah. afternoon. We, we might have to veer or haul depending on uh, how much we've got, as I say, because if, if, the, if the frenzy is as big as we genuinely think it might be yeah. uh, we might have to push it later in the year in order to have enough to release okay good well look just thanks for caring enough to be another crazy obsessive i, I love meeting people who take their Pleasure. little uh, nugget of an idea to the extreme and do it properly so uh, good luck and thanks for your time today thanks, thank you very much appreciate it. cheers Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players 
areas of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.